The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And Paul is saying in this that even in the most mundane, routine, non-spiritual things of life, like eating and drinking, God is to be glorified. And his glory is to be our life commitment. It's supposed to be the ground of all the convictions that we hold. And all of our actions, God's glory is the basis of all that we say and do and really think for that part. The glory of God is the foundation, the ground of our deepest convictions. And in all the things in the depths of our hearts, even in that, God is to be glorified. And that's why in Romans chapter 14, when Paul talks about the things that can threaten to cause division and hurt, and harm to one another in the church, he uses, uses huge, absolutely huge theological truths to give the right framework for dealing with seemingly petty opinions and divisions. We need God-centered and God-glorifying ways to handle the differences of opinions that we all have in the church, especially over non-essentials and those things that can be petty divisions over such things as whether a believer eats meat or eats veggies only. And it doesn't get any simpler than that, really, in life, does it? And we saw last week that in the church in Rome, there were those who were strong in faith, who regarded those who didn't eat meat with condescending contempt. And there were those who were weak in faith, who were judging those who did eat meat. Those who didn't eat meat most likely abstained because they had grown up in Judaism and they had eaten a kosher diet all their lives and they just continued to eat that kind of diet after receiving Christ. But for a Christian Jew who lived in Rome at the time, there was no place to buy kosher meat. They had been ostracized from the Jewish community and from the kosher markets. And they had not grown in faith enough to feel right about eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol or was simply not kosher. And so there was this judgmental spirit and condescending contempt in the church over whether a person eats meat or doesn't eat meat. Now, admittedly, it should not be a very big deal whether a person eats meat or not, right? Yet the disagreements over such non-essentials over the centuries and in churches have led to bitter feelings They've led to breakdown of relationships. They've even split churches. And terrible disrepute has come upon the name of Christ. So in itself, the issue is small. But what it can become without the right framework of thinking is terrible. So the Apostle Paul does an astute thing here in Romans chapter 14. He uses these huge theological truths to give the right framework to deal with these kinds of problems. So look at verse 3 of Romans chapter 14 for a minute, the third verse of the 14th chapter. We saw last week that Paul pulled out three big truths to handle the problem of disagreements about eating meat. First of all, he says that we should not pass judgment on a fellow believer in such things. And he says at the end of verse 3, for God has accepted him. For God has accepted him. 
We have seen in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans that the very meaning of being a Christian is one who is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, God has justified the sinner by faith, and he or she, that sinner justified by faith, stands righteous and accepted before God. And Paul is saying, beware lest you treat your fellow believer in any other way. If that person is not acceptable to God, no, that that person is accepted to God. If God has accepted him or her, who are you to reject them and not to receive them and not to receive them? And not to accept them. And the second big truth is in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And so the second big truth is that your fellow believer will give an account for his or her life before his or her own master. And thank goodness that's not you or me. They don't answer to you or me. They answer to their master, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so judgment is coming, and so we need to take heed to ourselves, and we'll see more of that next week. But then at the end of verse 4, Paul expresses his strong view of the perseverance of the saints, or what we call eternity, eternal security, that God, nothing can take us out of the hand of Jesus Christ. Nothing can take us out of the hand, hand of God. And whether we're and we are, we're disagreeing, we're imperfect saints, but we will all made to, be, to stand in the judgment at the end of verse 4. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the future of believers is not up for grabs. God will keep us and make us stand at the last day. And all of these huge theological truths are brought out by Paul to give a framework for handling our little differences over non-essential matters in the church that can do such big damage without a God-centered way of thinking. So now in verse 5, Paul turns to the subject of which days of the week that we're going to hold sacred, that we're going to worship or be observed for the Lord and for the glory of the Lord. In its most basic sense, it was whether to keep the Sabbath, which was Saturday, as you know, or might know, the Sabbath began on sundown Friday and ran until sundown Saturday. And so to keep the Sabbath meant that it was a sacred day on Saturday to, to worship the Lord. Or whether you're going to worship on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. The Lord's Day is called that because that's the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And then early Christian church, particularly the Gentile church, uh, they gathered for worship on the Lord's Day. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, on the first day of week, you're supposed to take an offering. Why the first day of the week? That's Sunday. That's the day that they were gathered to worship. But before we get into all of that, I want to call your attention to the big theological truths here that form the framework for Paul's discussion on handling differences here over the non-essentials. I'm going to call your attention to the big theological truths by just reading the text. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 14. He who eats observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he does eat not for the Lord he does... And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. Not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. 
For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Those are great big truths, aren't they? Whether we live or die, life and death, we live for the Lord. And then Paul ends this particular section with a theological explanation point. You can pound the pulpit here. He appeals to the great theological truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. I'd like to read what Pastor John Stott said of this. He says, It is wonderful that the apostle lists the very mundane question of our mutual relationships in the Christian community to the high theological level of the death, resurrection, and consequent universal lordship of Jesus Christ. Because he is our Lord, we must live for him. Because he is also the Lord of our fellow Christians, we must respect their relationship to him, I like the way he put this, and mind our own business. (laughs) For he died and rose to be Lord. This is the huge theological framework for handling our differences over non-essentials in the church. So how do we do that? How do we do that in the light, light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the light of the truth that he is Lord of both the living and the dead? How do we handle our differences? So first of all, we see in verse 5 that we are to be fully convinced We are to be fully convinced. He says, For one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, the disagreement conserves the observance or non-observance of special days. And these special days I talked about certainly include the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, and which one you're going to hold sacred and set apart as a time to honor God, to give Him thanks. But it's more than that they're talking about here, because the special days, especially for Christian Jews in Rome, included the many holy days and feast days that were part of the Old Testament, part of the Old Covenant. There were many Jewish festivals, both feast and fast, that were weekly, that were monthly, that were annual, including the Feast of Pentecost. And we sang that in a song today. That's just the way the Lord would have it because it works right in here. Pentecost was a feast. It was 50 days after Passover. That's why Penta means five, 50 days. And it was primarily a thanksgiving for the first fruits of the wheat harvest. They would start gathering the wheat, and then they'd have, have Pentecost for the, as a celebration. And you remember that many of the believers in Rome were saved because they had heard Peter preach the gospel at Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had come upon, upon the church. And so Pentecost was the birth of the church. And there were Roman Christians who had been saved at that great event. How'd you like to hear Peter preach and be convicted by the Holy Spirit and receive Christ and be baptized? And 3,000 were saved and baptized that day. And so these very first fruits of the church were born again on that day. And so God used that symbolism of first fruits. And so that would make Pentecost 
an extremely important day if you were one of those believers in Rome that got saved or one of your family members did or your best friend who led you to the Lord got saved on that day. So you can see how that works. So, so that's in a very, that was a very important day. And, and some of them say, hey, that's, well, that was not only my spiritual birthday, born again, but that was the birthday of the church. And, and uh, you can look at calendars today and you'll see that Pentecost is still on the calendar, right? It was May 31st this last year, a couple of weeks ago. Look at most calendars today, you'll find Passover, you'll find Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Ascension Day, the day that the Lord Jesus was taken up to the right hand of the Father, Epiphany, remember what Epiphany is? It celebrates the Magi coming and worshiping the Christ child, Christmas and Thanksgiving. And so even today we have all these different kinds of special days of different meanings and different significance to all kinds of different Christians and in their relationship to Christ. As to whether one is going to observe this day or that day or the other day, and what their personal conviction is on the matter. So it's not just whether you're going to worship on the Sabbath or on the Lord's Day, but what are you going to do with all these other special days and holy days that somebody may hold sacred and you don't give any, never mind. But what are you going to do with it? So having talked about having disagreements on whether one eats meat or not, of which days are regarded as important to be observed, you think that Paul would say something like this, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't just let go of the little stuff. For the sake of your brother, let go of the non-essentials in light of the big truths, let that stuff go. But what Paul does here is exactly the opposite. Paul says something that would seem to make the problems even worse, at least it would seem to me. Here you have groups in the church disagreeing over which days are sacred and what to do on those days, disagreeing over what foods one should eat and not be eaten, and their feelings are strong about this. They're starting to say things and do things relationally that are destructive to true fellowship in the church. And they're accusing each other. One's judging the other, and the others are holding the others in contempt. They're actually despising one another. And Paul comes along, instead of saying, lighten up, these things are minor, and they don't merit strong convictions, he says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. It's like Paul is saying, okay, you squabblers over there, over less important issues, get a firm conviction on this. No wafflers here. Everyone take a firm stand. You see, Paul is not saying as a concession that everybody can have their own conviction about the matter. It's an imperative. It's an imperative. It's a command. Everyone must have his own conviction. He must be fully convinced in his own mind. The mind here includes the heart and the conscience. It's our deepest convictions and motivations. The word translated fully convinced means to bring to full measure. You don't need to turn to it, but the word is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 to describe how the Thessalonians received the gospel. Paul wrote, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Full conviction, there's the word. 
The gospel came with full conviction. In the letter to the Hebrews, the word is used of the assurance of faith, of having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Full conviction, full assurance of faith. It's used of Abraham, the father of faith, who was fully assured of what God had promised he was also able to perform. Therefore, it's also credited to him as righteousness. The number one verse in the book of Romans. Faith was credited to him as righteousness because he was fully assured in what God had promised. And I take this to mean that the way for Christians to get along in the church, the way for us to get along in the church, is for each one of us to have a conviction on the matter. To be fully assured in one's own heart and mind that what they are doing and what they are saying, and this is the key, is the right God-honoring and God-glorifying thing to do. Be fully convinced that what you do and what you say is the right God-honoring and God-glorifying thing to do. Because without that kind of deep conviction, there's going to be trouble that is destructive to the fellowship in the church. And so Paul shows us what being fully convinced in one's own mind is to look like. Whether it's days or the day we hold sacred or whether it's eating meat or eating vegetables or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whatever you do, we are to observe it for the Lord and give thanks to God. We are to observe it for the Lord and give thanks to God. So here Paul returns to the big truths in verse 6. He puts it in the framework of big, big theological truths. Paul simply makes the radical claim that true Christians on both sides of these issues are glorifying God in what they do. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. We have come to our full conviction by asking, what will honor the Lord in this situation? How can I approach it so in doing so I give thanks to him? Thanks to him. And we have decided based on that, not to drink this will honor the Lord. Or not to eat this will honor the Lord. Or not to do that or wear that or go there or wear that or not wear it or eat it or not eat it. That Whatever we do, we are fully convinced and assured that we do it for the Lord and give thanks to him. And the problem is for us frail human beings, the problem is that someone who chooses the very opposite that we have chosen, we have a hard time believing they can do that for the Lord. (laughs) Right? And that Jesus will be magnified in their behavior when I have full conviction on the other? Well, now, of course, you can't do just anything or everything for the glory of God, right? In the sense, you can't murder for the glory of God, right? We keep it simple here. You can't commit adultery. You can't commit any sin for the glory of God. You can't hold bitterness in your heart for the glory of God. You can't teach false doctrine or subscribe to false doctrine or promote false teachers for the glory of God, right? Or do anything for your own selfish interest for the glory of God. So we would have allowed a whole bunch of stuff right there, right? 
But what is probably less obvious is that anything that we do to harm a fellow believer. Remember we read in Romans, love does no harm to a neighbor. Anything that we do to cause harm to a fellow believer, even when we are living in accordance with our own firm convictions, whether that harm is intentional or not, anything that we do to harm someone else does not bring glory to God. just doesn't work. So turn over to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where we see some, some parallels here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 at verse 8. In the 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is specifically talking about eating or not eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. In that world, the, the pagans would bring their sacrifice of meat and bring it to the, the temple where a pagan priest would do whatever he did in his particular ritual to that, that meat, and then he'd offer a portion of it to the idol, and then he would take some for himself and eat that, and then he had all these marvelous cuts of meat because they offered, the pagans offered the very best meat they had to their, to their gods. So you have all these wonderful cuts of meat, and what are you going to do with them? They either sold them in the markets, and in all places, some of the temples in, in Corinth they actually had a restaurant, if you want to use that word, in the temple where you could come and eat this temple meat that had been off sacrificed to an idol and, and you could eat it right there in the temple. And, and some Christians thought it, it's only meat, it's only an idol, he has no ears, he has no eyes, he can't do anything. It's just, I mean, you know, so they had no problem with going to get that best cut of meat at, at the temple. And, and so in verse says, Verse 8, he says that whether you eat the meat or don't eat does not commend us to God one way or the other in the sense that you don't have an in with God or impress God one way or the other. He says in verse 8, but food will not commend us to God for we are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. It's really small stuff, right? Unless, unless we abuse our liberty by hurting someone else. The big theological truths kick in, verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who has knowledge, now the knowledge there is speaking of, I know how this really works. There are no false gods. Meat is meat. God has cleansed everything. Remember, it took Peter a really difficult time to go and have that ham sandwich at Cornelius' house, you know, and it took a vision and God descending and saying, take and eat, and he had to do that a couple of times, or was it three times? And Peter finally said, okay, I can, I can eat that. You know, so those who have knowledge, they know there's nothing to this. There's nothing evil in itself going on about this. But if someone sees you who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Now, you're, you're making your fellow believer go against your conscience here because he comes along and says, man, that guy's an elder in my church. <laughs> and he's eating there. I know that's wrong, but he's eating there. Then it must be okay for me. And he goes against his conscience. He goes against his firm conviction. And he says, For though through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined. 
ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Big truth, right? Big truth. You know, here's what's going on in, in, in the brother's mind. He says, okay, I, I, once he's violated his conscience and his convictions on this point, the next thing that comes along, he doesn't have any discernment left. And he falls into this. And then he falls into that. And he is spiritually wounded. You have destroyed your brother, literally. Huge truth. Verse 12, And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. Paul's answer, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That doesn't mean there's not circumstances in a Christian's life. You know, what I do in privacy in my home and those kinds of things, you know, that's between me and the Lord and, and my conscience and my firm convictions. But if I'm out and about, you know, in, in those places where there could be a fellow believer that I could harm through that, then, then I'm not going to do that. So go back to Romans chapter 14, and we see a corollary here. In the 14th chapter of Romans, at the 14th verse, a corollary to what we just read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul expresses his own conviction to begin with. Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That is Paul's deep conviction. Nothing in and of itself is unclean. There's no unclean foods. Eat whatever you want. You can do that with a clear conscience. But Paul continues, he says, But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And then Paul gives the clincher. Big truth again in verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, by destroying him, he doesn't mean he's going to cause eternal damnation or something like that, but it does mean to seriously devastate his spiritual growth, to bring your brother to spiritual ruin. They suffer the loss of their spiritual well-being, an injury the Lord considers to be extremely grave. And this causes me to wonder, what other relatively small things, the non-essentials, compared to the big truths, we could substitute here for the word food? What else, you know, and you, I'm not going to name these but at this point, but just think of those things that are relatively small things, and you have a disagreement with a fellow believer, and it causes trouble, and you have, you have, strong, you have a strong conviction, you have a strong opinion that it's, that it's good. That we personally, we think we can honor God and be glory, bring glory to Him. It's a relatively small thing, but uh, these are the kinds of things that have divided the body of Christ for, for thousands of years. Well, I'm going to give you one of my personal ones here in a minute. <laughs> So let me give you a personal example, you know, to get you thinking. And this, this is mostly about me right now and my convictions, so, so bear with me. 
on this. But I have deep, deep convictions that our nation was established on biblical principles. And that God wants our nation to return to those principles, right? And many of us share that conviction. And I've lost track of the vast number of books that I've read on the matter. Reading history books and biographies is one of my hobbies. It's one of my joys. And as a result, I have strong political opinions. And that's genetic. I grew up in a family that all we did talk about was religion and politics. You know, and even as a kid, you know, I don't know if it's because it's raining outside, but there were times instead of going out and playing with my cousin's stuff, I'd rather go back into the living room when we're gathered at Christmas or Thanksgiving or somebody's here on vacation from, from someplace else and, and, and just listen to the adults talk because I have a, an uncle who was a tenured professor of political science at Alabama. And it just ran in the family. And, and they would talk politics, they would talk religion, they would talk everything. And if the discussion wasn't lively enough, one of my uncles would take the other side just to keep it going. But in all of this discussion, there was laughter, there was discussion, there was all kinds of stuff. You know, so that, that's born into me. But it's also an historical fact that both the Plymouth Colony, where I had ancestors that came on the Mayflower, and the Massachusetts Bay Colony were established for the glory of God. They put that in their founding documents. The founders of these colonies considered themselves to be in covenant relationship with God. Remember the Mayflower Compact, the Mayflower Covenant. This is what God is going to do if we do such and such. And we're going to do this for the glory for God. Glory to God. And I want to see God glorified in our nation once again. And I want to see that covenant restored. Not everybody agrees that we have a covenant with God or had a covenant with God. In fact, the last covenantal president was Abraham Lincoln. He was the last president we had that really understood the covenant we had with God in the founding of this nation. Ronald Reagan came really close, <laughs> really close, but not as close as Abraham, as Abraham Lincoln. Why did Abraham Lincoln want to keep the union together? Because we had a covenant with God. Now, my uncle, who's the smartest man I've ever known in my life, if he was still on this earth, he would disagree with me <laughs> on that. But, you know, those are, those are my convictions. I want us once again to be one nation under God. And there's hardly a day that goes by that Jan and I don't pray for that these days. So how do I go about living my convictions and, and, I've, and, and acting and speaking about my convictions in this politically charged and polarized environment that's in our case. Not only politically charged, it's all kinds of charged today. With You know what's going on. How do I exercise my liberty in Christ when it comes to politics? I tell you one way that I don't, or at least I shouldn't, and I have on occasion, and I've repented of that. Back to verse 15 of Romans chapter 14. All of that to say, this is the word I'm choosing this day to substitute for the word food. And that word is politics. Oh, let's go for the big one, Pastor. Way to go. <laughs> but that's, that's where I'm at today. For if because of politics 
your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your politics him for whom Christ died. And I were to paraphrase and substitute the words, go back up to verse 3, it could be asked this way. Why do you hold in contempt the believer who disagrees with you politically? Is that too strong? I don't think so. Why do you judge a fellow believer based on your politics? Based on your politics. So I want to give you an illustration of my own life and firm convictions that I think speaks the most to the most polarizing issues in our country today. And I'll start with the example, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit, and where at least my thoughts are on the matter, and this is, once again, where I'm coming from on this, and how the Lord has dealt with me personally on the matter. Many of you know I'm a history buff. Love to read history. My daughter's saying all the time, Dad, you're such a nerd. And I point out, you can go to history, the history uh, webpage, I can't remember the exact the whole name of it. I can buy t-shirts that say history nerd on them. It might be a good Father's Day present, but they're a little pricey. <laughs> I think they're 26 bucks, too much. <laughs> and when I'm not reading about the founding of our country, about the pilgrims and our forefathers and all of that, I'm reading about Christopher Columbus. Oh, well, he's not controversial, is he? They just tore down a bunch of statues this week. I, I've got at least a dozen books about Christopher Columbus on my shelf. And I've read that. Or, or I'm reading about William Wilberforce and, or John Newton or President John Adams. And I'm not saying this to lift me up as some kind of expert, but when you do a lot of reading, you develop strong convictions about those things, right? You know, it, it would be one thing if all of our strong convictions came from God's Word. That's where they're supposed to come from. But everything we read, everything we watch... It's going to start bombarding us one way or the other, our minds. And so this is just to say, we must be very careful what we listen to, what we read these days, and be discerning in those matters. But if I was to center on one particular event in history that has gained my interest the most, of which I've read the most about, it's the Civil War. It's the Civil War. I've watched Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War more times than I can count. I've read biographies about several Civil War generals and officers. I've read at least three biographies of the Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, a man I consider to be a godly man, but he was on the wrong side of history. One thing that Stonewall Jackson did was he had one slave. He freed his slaves before he went to war for what he considered his country, Virginia. I've read at least four biographies about Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain. He was a theology professor who told his wife he was going on a sabbatical and told the college he was going on a sabbatical, and he went in and went in and joined the army, and they made him a colonel right off the top. And uh, he was the, the Union soldier and the 20th Maine that turned the tide at Gettysburg. If the line had failed at Gettysburg, the South would have won. At, uh, at Gettysburg, if the line, the federal line ha had failed. And uh, a great, a great man of faith. When they ran out of ammunition, they charged and uh, sent the enemy running because they didn't know what was going on. Lawrence Chamberlain, one of my Hebrews, heroes. I've read biographies about Robert E. Lee and Confederate generals you've never heard of. General Wade Hampton, a, a godly man who appealed to national unity 
who appealed to free the slaves, but yet he was a successionist and fought on the sides of the Confederates. And most of these biographies have one thing in common, and this is why I enjoy reading them, and that's why, how I get so much out of them, is for, for the most part, they are about men who loved God and found themselves in the most horrible circumstances possible. Jan says, why do you watch war movies at night to wind down? <laughs> because that doesn't work for her. But to, to see how people live and react, especially if it's a war movie of faith. I don't recommend it because it's gory and bloody, but Hacksaw Ridge is one of those. You know, where a, a pacifist who was a medic in the army saved 50-some, 60-some lives basically by himself even though he had been mistreated in boot camp and beaten at some time because he was a, a pacifist. You know, they find themselves in the most horrible circumstances possible and in those places where it's extremely difficult to trust God and to live for him. And how do they navigate and live for Christ and give him thanks in those difficult situations? And the point here is, in spite of human frailty and in spite of the fact that in times of war we would all make decisions and do things that we regret, I could probably defend and spend several hours the actions of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson and say why those monuments should be retained and don't tear them down. I could spend hours and hours and hours on why you're misunderstanding Columbus <laughs> and, uh, and those kind of things, who found himself in just circumstances beyond his control because of the greed of the Spaniards who enslaved the Native American people. But there's one incident that turned me on this because to defend them is not my job. To defend anybody in history, to defend anybody in politics today, that's not my job as a Christian. So there's one incident that turned me on this. It was back in 2013. I bought a necktie to mark the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. That was on July 3rd and 4th, 1863. Beautiful necktie. It goes perfect with this shirt. So why didn't I wear it today? Yeah, it's really a cool tie. It's got pictures of swords on it and cannons. And if you ever heard them going to the river through time at the Island Park they've been doing for about 20 years now where the, you, you walk from frontier days and all the way around to World War II sometimes and, and, you know, and listen to them shoot the cannons, the, the Civil War enactors are on one side as the Confederate soldiers and I've talked to all those guys and then they have the Northern Army on the other side and shoot their cannons and I was, I was there one day when they were shooting the Gatling gun. They, they didn't call it a Gatling gun because it was a precursor to the Gatling gun and you know, and all those things. And, and the tie has pictures of cannons on it and swords and of generals setting erect in their, their saddles. But the tie also has several pictures of what on it? Flags. Flags. And there's the Confederate flag. You know, I do have a, 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 an American flag tie that I didn't wear today. And the reason I didn't wear it to it today is because it plays the national anthem. Now, the problem is, <laughs> once you push the button and the national anthem starts, you can't stop it. <laughs> because it would be disrespectful <laughs> to stop the national anthem in the middle. So that's a whole different reason for why I don't wear that tie very often. But, you know, as much as I'd like to tell you that my Civil War tie, my, the tie I bought 
in recognition of the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. As much as I would tell you that the Confederate flag on there doesn't make a difference, I was wrong. I'm wrong. It does make a difference. I only wore that tie once because, among other things, that symbol of the Confederate flag, I know that's been co-opted by violent haters and all those kind of things, but it symbolizes one of our national sins, the sin of slavery. And that is the sermon for another time, our, our national sins. Our, our nation will not be healed and returned to covenantal relationship with God until we, God's people, confess and repent of our national sins, which are, are many. Jeremiah did that. David did that. Nehemiah did that. You find that through the Old Testament. So I only wore the tie once before I was convicted to never wear it again. I pulled it out yesterday just to see what's on it so I could remember exactly <laughs> why I didn't wear it. It goes perfect with this shirt. <laughs> a necktie. A little thing. A necktie. What's, what's the big deal? But if because of a necktie your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your necktie him for whom Christ has died. I know what that necktie could or would mean to me, but I can't wear it for the glory of God. I can't wear it for the glory of God. Why not verse 14 and we'll just, or, or chapter, chapter 14, verse 7, and we'll just conclude with this. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Shall we? Our Heavenly Father, I pray for all the turmoil and all the stress and everything that's going in our country today, Father. And I pray that those who really speak voices of, of hurt, but yes, uh, yes, of wisdom and insight and reason, Father, I pray that we would hear those voices and respond to them in a godly way. And I, Father, I pray for those who are trying to co-opt all these things these days and, and turn it into something that is violent and something that is for their own selfish interest and, and something that, uh, Father, is, is hurting our nation as a whole, Father. I pray that you would put a hand of protection from those kinds of people, Father. But I pray, pray, Father, that you would bring our country, and even our world, Father, together in a way where we as believers in Jesus Christ, those who are called by your name, Father, will take the lead in confession, in humility, in repentance, and turning to you, Father. 
that our nation might be restored, Lord. And that we might be once again one nation under God in covenantal relationship with you. And for this we pray in Jesus' name.